the section of First Peter that we have been in for the past uh, month or so, we've been in First in Peter for months, but the section that we've been in for the last month or so has been about the believer's response to living in a culture in which we are in conflict. Suffering and persecution has often been in the forefront of this section. It can get a little depressing talking about suffering and persecution. I would skip it, but it's in the Bible, so I can't. But we're going to do a little short review just to catch us up of, of this particular section. Uh, Peter instructs believers to live righteously while enduring persecution. While suffering, we honor Christ by being prepared to make a defense when people ask about our hope in Christ. And by the way, it's in suffering when our hope shines brightest. Peter also makes a statement that it is better to suffer for doing good than it is to suffer for doing evil. Jesus proved that to be true when he suffered in dying to pay the penalty of sins. Christ's suffering allowed sinners to be forgiven by the Father because Christ paid the penalty of our sins. While facing persecution, a believer can become overwhelmed with worry, feeling like life is out of control. We respond to the culture's unrelenting pressure by committing ourselves to being in God's will. If God places us in peril, we commit to his will. We offer ourselves to be used by God for God's pleasure. We also need to live like Christ could come back at any time. Why? Because Christ could come back at any time. Our mind, our actions, and our motivations need to be fixed on the reality of Christ's return. He is ready to judge. We need to be ready to be judged. This morning, we'll consider the last response in this section of 1 Peter. And the world will not understand this response at all. Peter has instructed the church and how the church should respond to suffering for the sake of Christ, of being persecuted by others because of a commitment to Christ. Those that persecute could never anticipate that the persecuted could live joyfully. And yet, joy is exactly the response that a disciple of Christ should exhibit. Joy doesn't make sense to those that are apart from Christ. But for us, who know that the fullness of our salvation is secure, joy is the only response that makes any sense at all. Our culture thinks that the persecution that is directed at the believer, that the believer will fall in line, will cry foul, or will simply slink away. Living joyfully never enters their mind, but choosing joy is exactly what God intends for us to do. When experiencing suffering or persecution, we need to say, today I choose joy. Today I choose joy. Heavenly Father, help us to understand your word and your ways and entrust ourselves to you so that we can say those difficult words when trials, when persecution, when, when tough times come because of our commitment to you and to your son, Jesus Christ, that we'll be able to say, today I choose joy. Father, we need your help in this, uh, and, uh, and we trust that, uh, that your Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance 
the, the, what your word says so that we can say it, today I choose joy. And it's in Jesus' name that we can choose joy. His name we pray, amen. This morning, we're going to attempt to answer two questions. The first question is, what robs us of our joy? What robs us of our joy? Sometimes I feel like I'm 46 going on eight when I think of a thief and the first thing that comes to mind is the Hamburglar. But um, what are you going to do? That's what came to mind, so that's what the picture is. What robs us of our joy? Well, it says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What robs us of our joy? Uninformed expectations. Uninformed expectations will rob us of our joy. Uninformed expectations keep us from living joyfully. Notice it is not the fiery trial that robs, that robs us from joyful living. It is the expectation that life will be trial-free because I am saved. There is a Christian teen devotional book entitled, If God Loves Me, Why Can't I Get My Locker Open? That might be the greatest book title ever. Do you ever feel that way? All the time. All the time. It is our uninformed expectation that is the problem. Christian, you are different than the world. This is how the sinful world has always been. In 1 John 3.12, it talks about an occurrence, the very beginning of, of, of the book of Genesis. It says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was religious, but not righteous. The Pharisees that offered up Jesus to Pilate to be killed, they were religious, but they were not righteous. Our righteousness on our own is compared to bloody, soaked rags. The only righteousness we have is because of Jesus Christ. He traded his righteousness for our sinfulness. In the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The only righteousness I have is the righteousness of Christ because he, he, he made a wonderful trade for me. He took my sinfulness and gave me his righteousness. So it's not a righteousness of my own, but it is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In the verse when it says, do not be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you, the literal translation for fiery trial is the among you burning. For Christians in Rome at this time, this was literal. Peter could have been anticipating that the actions taken by Nero in Rome which was to use humans, to use Christians as lamps, could have been copied in the provinces of northern Turkey. Peter is saying, don't be surprised when the burning starts. That is a far cry from 
God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Isn't it? Now, does God love us? Yes. Does God have a wonderful plan for our life? Absolutely. But so often we, we misunderstand and say, oh, I, Jesus loves me, nothing bad will ever happen. That's not what this is. Peter says, don't be surprised when the burning starts. And then we get to this amazing statement from Peter in verse 13. He says, don't be surprised when the burning starts, but instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Instead of surprise when the burning starts, Peter instructs them to rejoice. We will find out in this passage how to increase our joy, but first we are going to identify what robs us of our joy. I want to get the uplifting part at the end, right? If somebody says, I've got good news and bad news, which do you want? You always take the bad news first, right? Yeah, you want to leave the conversation feeling good. So we're going to look at what robs us of our joy and then what will increase our joy. Verse 14 tells us the second, uh, the second cause of our joy being robbed. In verse 14, it says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So what is the second one? Misunderstanding the value of insults. Misunderstanding the value of insults. When insulted, I am blessed. Now, I try to avoid being insulted. Uh, when I see a, a teacher at the middle school I substitute taught at, they ask me how it's, how it's going for me, and I tell them that I'm enjoying pastoring here. Then I tell them that it is nice not to be constantly disrespected by a bunch of 13-year-olds. I meant it as a joke, but the look in their eyes tell me that I hit too close to home. <laughs> for the moment, we will keep our focus on the fact that insults bring opportunities for God's blessing. They mean it for evil, but God says, I'll use it for good. And that is the pattern we, we see all through Scripture. In fact, the word Christian, a lot of people think that started out as an insult. Right? It started out as an insult, um, saying, oh, those people, that first Christians were called part of the way, uh, and then at some point they were called Christians. I think Acts tells us it first happened in Antioch, I believe. I'll have to go back and check on that. But the idea is that it was a little insult because, oh, look at, look at a bunch of little Christs running around. And the Christians said, yeah, we are supposed to be like Christ. It's like when the British called us Yankees, right? We're like, yeah, we'll take that and, and we'll, we'll use it. Uh, but here, when we're insulted, I don't know about you, I think about how I can insult them back. And the thing is, is that I'm really good at it. There are two types of people. There are ones who, who uh, when insulted, they go home and all night they toss and turn thinking about what they could have said back. Uh, and then the other group of people, they, they spend all night tossing and turning because of what they said back. All right? So either way, you're going to toss and turn. All right? <laughs> so instead of thinking how to insult them back, in your heart and mind, thank them for the blessing. Thank them for the blessing. The last occurrence of joy being robbed mentioned in this passage is found in verse 15. It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer 
or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Imitating worldly behavior will rob you of your joy. And there are four things that are mentioned here, four actions. A murder, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. When I go through that list, that song from Sesame Street comes into my head. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. I look through this list of four things. Murder, thievery, evil, meddling. The meddler mentioned stands out to me. What is a meddler? A meddler is one who busies himself in the affairs of others in an unwarranted manner. Another word that we would use is busybody. And it can be destructive. In fact, Peter wrote Timothy uh, concerning those who are too young to be permanent widows. He tells Timothy to be careful of putting younger women on the widow list that the church is to take care of. Why? Well, he gives the, the instruction in uh, 1 Timothy 5.13. He says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. That's in the list, and it's not an accident that, uh, that Peter put it in that list. But Peter stressed that persecution was no, and this is, uh, sorry, this quote I'm going to give you is from uh, theologian Roger Raymer. Peter stressed that persecution was no excuse for lawlessness. Just because you're being persecuted is not an excuse for lawlessness. Christians were not to retaliate physical violence. Uh, Christians were not to retaliate. Physical violence was not to be met by murder. Confiscation of property was not to be compensated for by theft. No matter what their trials, Christians were to do nothing that would justify punishing them as criminals. They were not to suffer as murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. And when we imitate worldly behavior, thinking that persecution or trials is a, a, is a good reason or a good excuse or we're just, we're, we're honestly exasperated and we feel like nothing that I do matters, maybe we even wonder, is, is God even paying attention to me? If God loves me, why can't I open my locker? And and we go ahead and, and we, we imitate the worldly behavior that we are experiencing, that will rob you of your joy. We think we might find some sort of satisfaction, but we will not. There's no satisfaction in that. So that's what robs us of our joy. How can I increase my joy? How can I increase my joy? First of all, going back to the very first part of this, of this uh, letter that uh, Peter wrote to the churches in northern Turkey, in, very, in verse 3 of chapter 1, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and read that. I don't think I put that up on the screen. If you want to turn there, certainly feel free to do so, but I'll, I'll read it. Uh, in 1 Peter 1, starting at verses 3 through 6, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. How can I increase my joy? Remember your living hope. Remember your living hope. Our hope is in the already occurred resurrection of Jesus Christ. The faith of of the folks in the uh, Old Testament was based on the promised Messiah who had yet to come, had not yet died, and had not yet rose again. For us, it has already happened. The Messiah was born 2,000-some years ago, and then after his entire life and his time in ministry and and his time of of being murdered, being crucified on, on, on a cross, he said these wonderful words, it is finished. Then died, having completed his substitutional sacrifice, paying the penalty of our sin debt. You know how we know he died? They took his body down from the cross and buried it in a tomb inside a cave. It's a pretty good evidence, right? They don't typically bury live people. Not only was the cross empty now, but so is his grave. He's not there anymore. We have an empty cross and an empty tomb. Our inheritance is set. It is secured, and it is waiting. I used to like buffets because there was so much to eat, and you didn't have to wait. And then one day I realized that I would rather wait for my food than to have my food waiting for me. Our inheritance is a different deal. I am not waiting for my I am not waiting for my heavenly inheritance. My heavenly inheritance is waiting for me. Remembering that truth will increase your joy exponentially. I need to remember my living hope. And I also need to recognize God's chosen location. What will increase my joy? If I recognize God's chosen location. If you could be anywhere, where would you be? The obvious answer is, of course, Gary, Indiana. <laughs> no, that's, that's not true, especially if you've ever been there. But I also know it is not California or New York because those folks are leaving in a hurry. What is the obvious answer? With Christ, with Jesus. We read this verse, we read this verse already, But I want to take another look, concentrating on the last part of this verse. It says, if you are insulted for the name of of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you are insulted for the name of Christ, the spirit of the living God desires to reside with you. God desires intimate fellowship with you. Groucho Marx said, I refuse to join any club that would have me for a member. God looks upon you, insulted Christian, 
and says, there's no place I'd rather be. God doesn't just wait for us to one day get to him. God the Father and God the Son sent the Spirit of God to be with you right now, to guide you, to teach you, to commune with you, to fellowship with you. When we recognize that, our joy will increase. Another thing that we need to do, and this seems contrary, this, this, at first I, I thought that doesn't sound right, but it's, it's in Scripture, so we know that it is right. We need to compare ourselves with the unsaved. Now, I have always been careful with comparisons because doing so will get you in trouble sometimes. We had a rule in my house when I was a kid that, uh, that Mary and I had adopted in our own home Whoever cuts the cake chooses last. Does anybody else do that? Whoever cuts the piece of whatever everybody wants, you choose last. Otherwise, the comparisons never stop. His piece is bigger. How come he got more? And those are the things I say right now. <laughs> I don't want to get stuck with a smaller piece. That's not fair. Comparisons, we have to be careful about that. But Peter speaks again about suffering and our needed response. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? First, we're going to consider what Peter is saying about judgment beginning at the household of God. One of the reasons God allows persecution and trials in our life is that God uses worldly persecution as judgment for us. When we say, why, why are the bad things happening to me? Why are, why are trials happening to me? How, you know, I'm being persecuted for following Christ. How, how, is this, how can God allow this to happen? Well, one of the answers, one of the reasons is God saying, I'm using this as, as the judgment. I'm using this as the judgment. And that sounds wrong, doesn't it? Like if I were to come up with a solution, it wouldn't be that. I, I, I had a bit of an issue with this. Uh, again, I, I know that's what Scripture says, so I know it's true, but I had a hard time figuring this out. But God uses worldly persecution to purify the life of the believer. He allows worldly persecution for our spiritual benefit. In Hebrews 12, 7, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? So God uses trials and persecution as discipline to bring about our purification. A father that does not discipline his child hates his child. Only a loving, concerned father takes the time to discipline their child for the child's benefit. Imagine how horrible it would be if all of us were as self-centered as a toddler. Actually, I think we're kind of seeing that in culture a little bit, aren't we? And it's a problem. Maybe you're thinking, how can God use people more wicked than us to be the ones to bring about our discipline. That doesn't make any sense. You are not the first one to think that. In fact, 
the prophet Habakkuk had the same question in the Old Testament. Habakkuk 1.13, when he was complaining to God, quick recap of, of, that, of that prophecy, he was complaining to God as he looked around Judah at all of the sin that was occurring. And they were not acting like the people of God. They were not acting like the nation of God. They were not acting like they were the nation that God brought them out of captivity in Egypt, kept them safe, and secured victory for them uh, against, against warrior tribes. And they weren't acting like they had this, this special relationship with God. And he, was, he went to God and he was telling God, how long are you going to allow these people to continue being wicked like they are? And God said, that's a great question, Habakkuk. This is my loose translation. That's a great question, Habakkuk. I am sending the Babylonians to come and destroy the nation. And Habakkuk said, say what now? This is what it actually says in Habakkuk 1.13. He says to God, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Habakkuk had that same question. How could you use the wicked Babylonians to bring judgment upon us? We're not great, but we're not as bad as them. So maybe we wonder, God, how could you use people who don't even call you by name, who refuse your plan of salvation, who have rejected the only way of salvation, which is your son, Jesus Christ, how could you use them to judge us? Habakkuk complains to God that God's chosen people are wicked and not obeying the Lord's commands. But they're doing better than the Babylonians. And yet God tells us that he will use wicked people for our discipline. How does God's disciplining us through wicked people supposed to bring me joy? That doesn't sound like a joy-bringing thought. Two reasons. The discipline they render brings about our purification. It brings about our purification. Again, earlier in the book in 1 Peter, it says so in, in chapter 1, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it'll bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. The world meant for their persecution of believers for evil purposes, but God uses their evil intentions for our benefit. The second reason God's chosen way of disciplining us through evil intentions is by comparison. God loves us and calls us his own. Imagine how intense judgment will be for the people who have rejected him and rejected Christ. Imagine the outcome for those that rejected God's gospel. Our disciplining is just about over. The world's has barely gotten started. And so we compare. In 1 Peter 4.18 it says, If the righteous scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And we can find that answer in Scripture. 
If you want to check this out later, you can write it down now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. I'll read it, but let me say it again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 gives us the answer to the question here. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven. He will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who believe. And this includes you, for you believed what we told about you, told you about him. When I read this, this simultaneously brings joy and great concern. Joy for us, concern for the lost. The last action that we must take to increase our joy is found in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How can we increase our joy? Live by faith. Live by faith. Keep entrusting your soul to a faithful creator. There is no joy to be found when you entrust your soul to your own good works. You will never find rest, only worry. Because you'll never know, is this enough? Did I do enough? If God keeps church attendance, is it enough? If if it's based on my good works, have I done enough righteous things? Is it enough? And you'll never know. You'll never know if it is enough. There's a story of, a, of an elderly lady who was as faithful as could be. She involved herself in church all the time. She was involved in tons of ministry. She, she, she did good deeds all the time. And, and on her deathbed, uh, talking with her family, she said, I hope it was enough. And, and one of her grandkids said, well, if she don't know, how, are, how am I ever going to know? And eventually, he found God's good news, which is that it's not about our works. We could never do enough. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. That's the difference between faith I guess there's faith in one, but one faith doesn't make any sense. You know, as I think about faith and I think about exhibitions of faith, could you find more faith than the prophets of Baal? They had, I mean, they had faith like you wouldn't believe, but what did they have faith in? It's not just the, the intensity of your faith. What is it? It is the object of your faith. There is no joy when the object of your faith is yourself. No joy in that. But there's plenty of joy, exceeding joy, when we continue to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. When you trust your soul to a religious system 
instead of in God's forgiveness, given in his grace and received in faith, you won't have joy, only guilt. Nobody lives up to the demands of religion. Even if you invent your own religion, you will not measure up. You'll not measure up. It reminds me again of a a story of a, a man who was shipwrecked for years on a, on a deserted island. And when they found him, the, the, he, they gave a little tour of, of um, his encampment. And he's saying, this is, this is my home, this is where I sleep, this is where I would store my food. And they, they come upon a, a little hut with a, with a cross on it. And they said, what's this? And they said, well, this is where I would go to church. Uh, and they walked a little bit further down the path, and there was a, an identical building, another little wooden hut with a, with a cross on it. And, uh, and they said, well, what's that? And he said, that's where I used to go. <laughs> right? If we invented our own religion, right? If we invented our own religion, we would still fail in that religion. God's solution is better. Place your trust in me, God says. How can we stand before God when we all know that we are guilty as can be? Trust God's plan of salvation. Trust Christ's perfect life as the perfect payment for your sin. Look to Jesus' resurrection and have a living hope for your own resurrection. As we continue to live in conflict with the worldly culture around us, trust Christ to see us through. Trust God's plan to mature us and to refine us so that we grow in confidence that Jesus is enough. When the world intends us harm, but God uses their evil intentions for his purpose to bring us to him for all eternity and for his glory, choose joy. Heavenly Father, we are glad that there is joy in you and that you have told us that today, this day, and maybe for some of us this day is great, maybe for some of us this day has been difficult already, but you say this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Father, we can come and we can be joyful, even if if the culture around us doesn't understand and doesn't like our commitment to Jesus Christ and to his word, that there is still joy even when life is made difficult because our eternal life has been secured in Jesus Christ and his death, paying for our sins and his resurrection proving that sin had been forgiven, that sin had been defeated. Father, we we can be joyful because we know our eternal life is secure and set uh, and it's just waiting for us. The, the, the fullness of it is waiting for us. Father, I, I think of, of those that perhaps, if they're here this morning, that do not know the way of salvation, that your word has spelled out, that they're trusting in religion, trusting in good deeds, trusting in their own goodness. Father, I ask that you would help them to see that foolishness, that it only leads to worry and disappointment, and that they will seek out your way of salvation. Uh, that they will humble themselves before you and recognize there is nothing they can do to save themselves, but it's only because you have done it all through Jesus Christ. And Father, that you will take their, their, 
frustration and bitterness, and it will be turned to joy as they come to salvation through no other name than Jesus Christ alone. Father, help us to recognize that sin is a big deal, but then rejoice in the fact that you have paid it all. Father, help us to choose joy when it doesn't make sense. That by choosing joy, you will be glorified in all that we do, and that many people will come to know you, your Son, as their Savior, and you as the loving Father, and that their joy would be made complete. In Jesus' name, amen.